Okay, we are in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. So you can go ahead and start turning to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Uh, we, had a, we had a bunch of new folks in the last service, and uh, you could tell that, uh, and it's totally fine, that some of them weren't as familiar with their Bibles. And I said 1 Chronicles 22, and they're like, I don't know what to do with that information. You know, and so if you're new to the Bible, praise the Lord. We were all there at one point in our lives. Uh, turn to the front. There's a table of contents just like any other book you've ever read, and it'll tell you where this book called First Chronicles starts. And we are in the 22nd chapter of that particular book. Now, when we were last together, we had uh, been studying, as I said, first, well, I didn't say it, but First Chronicles 21. And uh, in that particular chapter, David uh, commits a, a great and a grievous sin, the Scripture says, against the Lord. And in doing so... The judgment of God is heavily upon him and it's heavily upon the nation of Israel. And that brings David to a place of brokenness and that brings David to a place where he is desperate for the mercy of God. He deserves the judgment he is getting. As we saw, the, the nation of Israel deserved the judgment they were getting. And they were desperately in need of the mercy of God. And so David went to the place of the mercy seat. And he cried out to God, is there any way you could forgo this judgment? And God, as is his nature and his character, he showed forth his mercy. And it was in that place, as we read in the first verse of chapter 22, it was in that place that David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here they offer a burnt offering uh, for Israel. That's the place where the temple would go on to be built. Now, it was in David's heart for a long time to build a permanent structure for the Ark of the Covenant. Way back in chapter 17, he had said to his buddy Nathan, the prophet, he said, I want to build a building to God. I live here in a, a beautiful palace that the neighboring kings provided all sorts of luxuries for me to live in. And just 100 yards away on the top of that hill over there, the Ark of the Covenant is under a tent, under a canopy. This is not right. And David said, I want to build this temple. And Nathan at the time kind of just jumped in. He said, yeah, great idea, do it. And then God kind of said to Nathan, no, uh, you know, that's not, that's not part of my plan. I don't want David to be the one building it, and so on. And he had to go back and he had to explain that uh, to David. Well, here we are now, a number of years later. David had wanted to build this temple, but was told he couldn't. But somebody else could later down the line. And let's read verse 2 and following. It says, Now David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and the Tyrians, they brought great quantities of cedar to David. Verse 5, for David said, Solomon, my son, is young. He's inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord. It must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. So as we read in 1 Chronicles 17.1, David wanted to build a house. His thinking, as I said, was what right do I have to live in a palace while the ark is there? And God said to him, no, you can't do it. And we spent some time, we looked at that. What happens when God says no? Especially when you know that this desire is good. I'm not trying to do this so I could become famous. I don't want it to be David's temple, you know, or something like that. Nothing with my name on it. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to have the glory. I don't want people to remember me. I'm not trying to do it to earn God's favor. I just want to do this thing for the Lord. And God says to him, no. And it's hard when God says no 
in our lives. As I said during that study that we looked at, I think it's harder when God says no, but he doesn't say why. Or you can tell me no, but just explain why so I can at least process this thing as I leave from here. And sometimes God tells us why, other time he doesn't. And David did his best. At that time, God never told him why. And David did his best to trust. And he went away and, he, and we read uh, his prayer. He just, the Psalms and so on. He just sort of left it there with the Lord. So I don't fully understand, but I'm going to trust. And rather than focus on what God wouldn't let him do, he focused on, as we said, what he could. What could David do? David could ensure that there was peace during the days of his son, Solomon. And so we saw in chapters 18, 19, and 20 how hard David worked to earn the peace that Israel would enjoy during Solomon's day. David could develop relationships with the neighboring kings, Tyre and Sidon, for instance. And it was those nations that provided the necessary building materials that Solomon would go on uh, to use. David could determine that rather than consume all of that wealth that he had acquired, the gold, the silver, and so on, on himself, that he could leave that wealth and pass that on to his son to be used for the building of the temple. So in 1 Chronicles 22.5, it says David provided materials in great quantity before his death. And it's a great reminder for us that when God says no uh, to a particular thing in our lives, we realize, you know what, I'm just a piece of this puzzle, as Natasha shared. I'm just a piece of this puzzle of advancing the kingdom of God. And as David, we, we don't focus necessarily on what we can't do, but rather we focus on what God will allow us to do. Secondly, we labor unto the Lord. You know what, Lord, this is your work, not for my glory. And so no one is ever going to mistake this and call it David's temple. Later on, people refer to it as Solomon's temple, but David doesn't care because he's laboring unto the Lord and not unto himself. It's for God's glory. And then finally, similarly, David doesn't care who gets the credit as long as the temple is built and the name of the Lord is exalted. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 3 says, I planted Apollos, that's another fellow leader of the day, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. It doesn't really matter who is planting, who is reaping, as long as God is getting the glory, is how Paul approached things. And I believe that's what we see how David is approaching things here regarding the temple. To God be the glory. Now look at verse 6 as we continue. Verse 6 says, Now he called Solomon, called for Solomon his son, and he charged Solomon to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, and you have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have set, shed so much blood before me on the earth. Now, as we learned, David wasn't originally told why. He just had to go away trusting. But then God eventually did reveal to him why, as it says here, is because he has been a man of war. He goes on, he says, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. The word Solomon means peace. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his throne in Israel forever. So God uh, eventually does inform David. And one of the things that I have found in my life, I've been walking with the Lord since uh, 1988. He's trying to walk with him uh, closely for, since 1988. And during that journey uh, with the Lord, there have been many times where God 
has said no. Initially, and quite frankly and honestly, maybe God has said no to you many times, initially, always, I struggle with that. I, I, I walk away from that and I think, you know what, God, I don't like you. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't like you would do that to me. Don't we have some deal that, you know, I agree to follow you and you do whatever I want and need um, kind of thing? I don't really feel comfortable with this situation here. But one of the things that I'm coming to discover, sometimes it takes a month, sometimes it takes six months, sometimes it takes a year or whatever, but almost always God will later on bring me on the backside of things when he said no to this and that meant I had to go down this particular path and then I'll look on the backside of it and I'll say, you know, God, I am so glad you said no to this over here. You knew what you were doing and I was kicking and screaming and I'm sorry uh, and I'm a little embarrassed about that now, Lord, would you forgive me? What we also know, though, is sometimes God never gives us a reason. And you'll never know until you get to heaven. And growing in faith is learning to trust. Whether the reason is presented or ever will be presented or not, it's learning to trust that God knows best, that he can be trusted, and he will take you through and he'll provide. So David here was told no. Now notice verse 7. David calls Solomon... And he says to him, now the, God later on revealed to me the reason why I couldn't. He said, because I'm a man of war, you're going to be a man of peace. And the nation of Israel during your administration is going to enjoy a period of peace. Now certainly there are some very practical aspects of that. That they, they would have all the, the resources and the laborers rather than having to go fight wars. They could be building and all that sort of stuff. That the people could go in safety to the temple uh, to worship. So there's practical aspects of that as well. But I think there's also typological uh, aspects as well. What I mean by typology is the way in which God sort of paints a picture in the Old Testament and through that picture he's trying to tell a story. What, maybe the greatest example of typology in the scripture is the fact that the people have to bring a sacrifice to the temple. Well, why? The New Testament says that the blood of bulls and goats, and we can reason with our mind, that the blood and bulls and goats can never take away our sin. Why would my sin be taken away, taken away because I kill some animal? That doesn't make any sense. But it's a type. So Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, no, the, the blood of bulls and goats, it never took away sin. It, 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 even when they did it for a thousand years, it wasn't designed to take away sin. It was an act of faith, and it all looked forward, as we said last week, where John the Baptist would look at Jesus, and he said, that is what we have been waiting for for 2,000 years. That's the one, that's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away our sins. It was all a type. One commentator I read said that God is jealous of his types. And what he means by that is that God, he wants to set out and he wants to show something in a picture and he's going to be careful that that picture uh, can really be painted clearly. And the picture that God wants to show with the temple is that the temple is going to be a place of peace. Not just peace from war, but peace from that inner war, that struggle that we have with God. So that a sinful man can come to a temple on behalf of his family. He could bring a spotless lamb, a year old, without any blemish, and he could present that to the priest, and he could say, this lamb is being brought on behalf of my family. We're shamed to tell you, but that we are sinners. And he, the priest would say, I understand. The man would put his hand on the lamb. The lamb would have his, its throat slit. He would writhe in pain, all this sort of stuff. And then the lamb would die. And then the man, the, the priest could turn to the man and he could say, you can go. Your sin has been atoned for. And that man who went in kind of dejected with his shame and his sin could walk away because the sin had been lifted. 
You see, this place of animosity has become a place of peace. And God is jealous for his types, to quote that particular commentator. And so he said, David, this is not going to be built by a man of war. It'll be built by a man of peace. And so David goes on in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He says, now my son, I couldn't do it, but you're going to do it. He says, and my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. What's the number one priority going to be of Solomon's administration? It's going to see that this temple is built. And he says, may the Lord be with you. He says, may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded for the nation of Israel. Be strong, be courageous, fear not, do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord. And he goes on and he explains that he gave gold and silver and bronze and iron beyond weight, timber and stone he's provided. And he says, and you're going to need to get even more of these things. He, he went on, you have an abundance of workmen. You have stonecutters and masons and carpenters and craftsmen without number who are skilled with working with gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Solomon, arise and work. The Lord be with you. So David's instructions to Solomon, uh, I, I find four of them really here, and they begin with, uh, he says, uh, with Solomon and gr- that the Lord would be with him and grant him discretion and understanding. Look at verses 11 and 12. My son, the Lord be with you. And you skip to the end of that. And may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding. Now you might look at that and you might, and Solomon might respond, all right, Solomon, the Lord be with you. And you're like, well, that's not really up to me. Um, go tell him to be with me or, you know, or something like that. But the reality is whether the Lord is with Solomon or not is up to him. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, when David is saying, the Lord be with you to Solomon, that's not an instruction to God to be with Solomon, but it's an instruction to Solomon to be with God. We see it a little more clearly in chapter 15 of Second Chronicles, a book we're going to get to eventually. Uh, when the prophet Azariah, Azariah comes to a king. This is about 70 years after the event of chapter 22. Uh, and it's a king by the name of Asa, the king of Judah. And the prophet Azariah comes to Asa and he says, Asa, king, Mr. King, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And I think David's instructions for Solomon are essentially this. Solomon, you need to find out what God is doing, what path he is walking, and then you need to kind of jog up alongside of him and get with him. You need to get to where the Lord is. The Lord is with you while you are with him. And so Solomon, you need to walk in his ways so that he can bless your ways. That's the first thing I think that he is explaining to him. Walk in the ways of God so that he can bless your ways. Secondly, when the Lord directs you and he gives you discretion and understanding as we read there, then I think we need to put those things into practice. So in the book of James chapter 1, it says, If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So if you lack wisdom in your life, and you do, uh, I do, we all do, we, I'm good, no, I, I got plenty of wisdom, okay, good luck with that, you know, you'll see in a little while you're going to need more wisdom, you're going to pray for God uh, to direct you. If you lack wisdom, the scripture says, come and pray for it, and God delights to give it and to pour it out. But 
Just him pouring it out doesn't mean you have it. Does that make sense? What it means is this. When wisdom is given to us, we must apply that wisdom. We must walk in that wisdom. So failure to apply wisdom means failure to have wisdom. So David is saying to Solomon, Solomon, seek the Lord for his wisdom, discover where he is going, and then go there also. It's not good enough just to know what God is doing. You need to go there with him if God's going to bless you. Now the third thing David tells Solomon, it's found in the second half of verse 13. Look at that, 22-13. It says, be strong and courageous, fear not, and do not be dismayed. Be strong, be courageous, fear not, and don't be dismayed. Now you might read that fear not, and you might think that David is saying something like, hey, stop it and be a man. Stop being afraid of things. You know, what's the matter with you, Solomon? That's not what David is saying there. So he's not saying that David don't have fear. The key to understanding that particular part of the verse is those words that are translated in our Bibles, uh, at least in the one I'm using, is do not be dismayed. It goes hand in hand with that word fear not. And it's not saying don't have fear, but rather, this is essentially what David is saying. Look, I was scared too. Sometimes I'm scared now. I was in the same place that you were at one point where I sat on that throne for the first time and I was freaked out. But Solomon, don't be dismayed. Now the word do not be dismayed is, it could be translated, do not be shattered. Do not be broken. But I think the best translation of it is, do not be so afraid that that fear leads to inaction. So again, to, take, to put words in David's mouth or whatever, I think what he's saying is, look, I know you're scared. I was scared too. But don't let that fear paralyze you. So if David wanted to, he could have went on, he could have preached a nice sermon uh, to uh, Solomon, his son. And he could say to him, you know what? Some people think that great men and women of God are, are men and women that have no fear. And they'll do anything. They've got these spines of steel. And they'll go anywhere and do anything and climb any mountain and all these sorts of things. He says, but Solomon, that's not what the Word of God teaches. That's not the example of the narratives that we read about in, in the Scriptures. And he could have said, you know what, think about Moses. Everyone thinks of Moses and thinks, you know, Moses is one of the, the greatest individuals that ever lived. An amazing leader and all these sorts of things. And he led the nation out of uh, slavery and he led them to the edge of the promised land and he was this great guy. But you remember how scared that Moses was of that calling? You remember that he pleaded with God and he said, please, just pick somebody else to do it. I don't want to do it. He was a man that had fear, but he didn't let the fear paralyze him. Joshua, the man who replaces Moses. How many times do you read in just the first few chapters of Joshua where it says, be strong and of good courage, be strong and courageous, fear not, these things. Why does he have to be told so many times? Because he was fearful. And he was afraid of having to lead four million people or more into a land that was filled with enemies and giant enemies as well. And say, you know what, all of you people, you need to leave now because we're going to take over your land there. He was fearful of that calling. But he didn't let his fear paralyze him. You look at Peter in the New Testament. Peter, you know, on this rock I will build my church. The first pope, some people will tell you, or whatever it may be is the, the theory that they have there. But this leader of the disciples, of the apostles, and Jesus clearly puts him in a place of leadership over these folks, but he was a man that struggled with his fears. And so the night that Jesus is being brutalized and beaten, and the day before he's about to be crucified, Peter has the opportunity to step up and at least say, I'm with that guy. He doesn't have to go and stop it and and try and take on all the Roman soldiers, 
but at least he could say, I'm with that guy. He's my friend. But when people say to him, when a little girl says to him, do you know him too? Peter says, I don't know the man. And the Scripture says he says it with cursings to emphasize the reality of his statement. He was a man that had fears. But he did not allow those fears to paralyze him and he went on and he accomplished great things unto the Lord. You look a little bit later when the Apostle Paul is writing to one of his protégés. He's writing to Timothy. And we have it in the book of 2 Timothy there. And Timothy was a young man. Paul was probably close to 60. Uh, Timothy was around 30. And Timothy is given this charge to lead the people of Ephesus, essentially serving as sort of the bishop, if you want to use that term, of the various churches that were in that community. He was the pastor to the pastors. Uh, but he was a young man in his day. And Timothy struggled with fear. We see that in the writings of First and Second Timothy. And Paul would say to him in Second Timothy 1, he says, Timothy, I remind you, fan into flame the gift that God has given you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. So Timothy, I'm not telling you don't be afraid, but don't give in to that fear. And rise above that. Let God work through you and use you despite that. Don't let it paralyze you. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that great men and women of God are impervious to fear. That nothing makes them afraid, nothing makes them kind of scared, nothing causes in their mind to go forth, I don't think I want to talk in this situation, I'm too nervous. But man, they just go forward and I wish I was more like them, but I'm not. Somehow God has gifted them to do this great work. He's given them, as I said, that spine of steel and they never chicken out. Well, the example of Scripture and the example of history is that that's not the case. That these men and women that have accomplished great things for God, they had fears, but they, did, they didn't let those fears overcome them. I came across an article. This is written by a lady named Katie Madrano, or Katie maybe, I guess. Uh, and it's entitled, The Top Ten Strong Human Fears. And it's based on a study she did of cultures around the world, whether it's a, an advanced culture, you know, lots of money and lots of education or whatever, or it's, it's a not-so-developed uh, culture, whatever it may be what she came to discover is that there are common fears, no matter where you live and when you live, that a, a culture will struggle with. Let's see if, I don't know how scientific it is, uh, but I think it resonates, and, and there seems to be some truth here, so uh, take this as you will. See if some of these are fears that you've experienced or observed. Number one fear, or this would be number 10 actually, I guess, would be the loss of freedom. That somehow something's gonna happen and you're gonna be thrown into a prison or a cell of some sorts. That would freak me out, and not on a daily basis, but nonetheless. A fear of the unknown. How many people fear going into the unknown? Fear of pain. That's why I didn't run as hard yesterday as I typically do in the Nativity Bowl. It's my fear of pain. I wanted to wake up this week and not so painful. Uh, fear of disappointment. Fear of misery. Fear of loneliness. That would be number four. The fear of being alone. Three and two, I don't know, two and three and four, whatever it is. Ridicule and rejection. Number two was the fear of death. And then Miss Madrona said an interesting thing. She said that the number one fear common to man anywhere in the world is the fear of failure. Isn't that interesting? The fear of failure. And I think David could have gone on the internet and quoted this study to his son Solomon. And he could say, you know what, Solomon, look, everywhere around the world, fear is normal, Solomon. But not letting it paralyze you, paralyze you, that's what separates the great men and women. And particularly in our instance that we're talking about is the great men and women uh, of God. And, and he could have gone on to say to Solomon, and you know what, Solomon, it's not even a fair fight to begin with. 
He says, because you have God on your side. And your endeavors are his endeavors, as long as you're walking according to his ways. And so it's really not a fair fight. So Solomon, you could be afraid of it, but don't let it paralyze you. So Solomon, this would be his concluding statement, be strong, be courageous, fear not, and don't be dismayed. And I think even though these words were written some 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, but they were spoken some 3,000 years ago to Solomon, I think they speak to us today. And I think they, David essentially is speaking into our lives and he says, you need not fear and you need not be paralyzed by that fear. So as it pertains to your studies, college students and beyond, as it pertains to your career and your work life, how have you let fear debilitate you? How have you let it bring you to a place where you refuse to move forward as you believe that God is leading? Many people do. Many of us were, fear, were fearful uh, in our service unto God. And we let that fear debilitate us. How many, I'm sure, because and, and, I know it happened in my life and I've talked to people before, so I have an idea. Uh, we, are, we let fears keep us from telling another person about the grace of God that can, is available to their lives. Have you ever been in that place? You're talking with someone and, and they're just kind of laying out their heart there and they've opened up and they've been honest with you. And you know, I could tell them right now about the love of Christ and how we can enter in and how we can change their life and change their circumstances and so on and so forth. And you know you have the words to them, but because of fear, you just say, mm, I'm sorry, that, that sounds really hard. You know, I'll be thinking about you or something like that. What good is that? Please, could you give me something else, please? Than thinking about me, you know? And you know you have the answer, but because of fear, you don't. I've been there many, many times that I, I go on and, and I, even myself, I reason, I'll just pray for them, I'll pray for them. And I'm driving away praying for them, but I never told them. Fear has debilitated me. And I'm not talking about, as far as evangelism, you know, getting up and being Greg Laurie or Billy Graham or something and getting up in front of thousands of people and talking. I'm just simply saying, telling another person about the reason for the hope that you have within you. We've all been there, right? Many of us, we've experienced a fear so great that we, we keep, it, we let it keep us from simply offering an invitation. Hey, you know what? My, my church, we're having uh, this concert. You should come. We'd love to have you. We're, we're doing a Christmas Eve service. You should come. We'd love to have you. I'd love you to join with me on a Sunday morning. But we're fearful, and we let that fear keep us from inviting someone that we know would benefit from attending. Some of us, we felt the draw to maybe uh, host a kid from uh, the Ukraine. Or go on a mission trip to Belize, like the college students. Or to get involved, and you know what? I feel the Lord might be causing me to want to be a teacher in the Sunday school. And then we let all the things kind of work, and we say, but I couldn't do it. Why would any kid want to stay at my house? Where would I get the money to do that? You know, I would hate it. If kids came to my Sunday school class and they saw that I was teaching, I was the teacher in the front getting set up, and I could see on their face that they wished the other person was teaching, I couldn't handle that. I have nothing to say to people. I try to prepare a study and it would come out dumb. You know what? I just won't do it. And what we do is we let fear paralyze us. And we never move forward because of that fear. It's very sad. It's unfortunate. And if you want to go personal in our walks with God, how many of us God has done a work in our heart? He, he's putting his finger on an area of our lives and he's saying, I want to do this. I want to change that. I want to mold that. I want to conform this or transform this into my image. And we, we receive that from the Lord. We know that God is right. We know it would be good. But because of our fear, we refuse to submit to what God is doing in our lives. Our fear of how we will ever get by in life, for instance. 
You know, this is the way that I have always done it. It kind of works. I get through. I know God wants to do a different thing in me, but I'm just afraid of that unknown. And so, no, we don't submit. Maybe some of us, God is saying, you know what, this relationship that you're in, not a good one. It's bringing you down. That friend, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, whatever it may be, it's bringing you down, it's hurting you. I need you to break that off. But you say, well, I need to have somebody in my life. And what if I break that off and nobody ever comes along again? I'm afraid of what that looks like, God. And so we don't. Maybe for some of us, we deal with life. We say things like, man, when I get home, I just need a drink. I would say to you, if you are saying, I need a substance, that's not good. That's not good at all. And if the Lord is saying, you know, I want, to put, I want you to put that out of your life. And you say, well, I don't know how I'll get by. I don't know how I'll live without that thing that I turn to to give me my strength or to get me by and all this sort of stuff. And you refuse to do anything about it, then that fear has uh, paralyzed you. David's message to us is God's message to us. It's the same one that he spoke to Joshua in Joshua 1.9 when Joshua was called to lead the people and he said, be strong and be courageous do not be frightened, notice the words, and do not be paralyzed, do not be dismayed. That's the third thing that God is speaking to David, or excuse me, Solomon. And now the fourth thing I, I see David telling Solomon is, he gives him some information. Look at verses 14 through 16. He gives him this information about how much silver and gold that he left for him. And then in the last few verses, words of the verse, he says, Arise and work, the Lord be with you. And I think that's good advice. Arise and work. You know, sometimes in the Christian community, sometimes we approach the work of God uh, as if it's going to be like some walk in the park. And so when it gets a little hard, a little challenging, a little tiring, a little frustrating, you know, what, am I, I'm not, what am I doing this for? I'm a volunteer. I don't want anything to do with this. Forget it. I work hard all week. I don't need this on the weekends or whatever. But the work of God is hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. It's tiring. Sometimes it's frustrating. I Personally, in my life, I've found no greater joy. But it doesn't mean it's going to be a walk in the park. Notice at the beginning of verse 14, David says, With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord. With great pains. Many of us would never get to great pains. Once it's a pain, I'm out of here. Right? And I'm moving my, myself on here. And so... Many of us will put a little effort forward, certainly, but nothing that's going to cause great pains. Look, I work all week. I don't need this hassle on the weekends. I don't think God accomplishes very much with people that approach ministry in that way. And so we get up, we work hard, we trust that the Lord is with us, and then we look for His blessing. But we don't just say, God bless it, and never have a spreadsheet, <laughs> Never create a flyer. Never go out and hand that out. Never do all the hard work of getting things ready. But we work very hard, and then we ask for the Lord's blessing as we sought His will. And so we pour ourselves into our Sunday school lesson. I, I taught everything, it seems, in my day. Uh, and there were times driving to the site was preparing my lesson uh, in my mind. All right, let's see. That's a good one. What did I read this week? Okay. You know, that's not a good way to go about preparing your youth group lesson. All right, and uh, the kids, I believe, deserve much more. Uh, Sunday school lesson, home fellowship study. How many times uh, where you're leading a home fellowship 
And everybody else, Thursday night, you know, they, they're going their separate ways and the kids are going to their bedroom and your wife, she's going to watch the TV or whatever it may be. And you'd like to go watch your favorite show. Your favorite show is on, but you can't because you've got to go down to your office and you have to prepare for the study when the people come to the house. That's hard. Arise and work, he says. How many times on a Sunday morning when you get up with the alarm rather than waiting for the birds kind of to wake you up? Because you want to get to that place and you want to go and you want to serve. And you're probably a little bit tired, but you arise and you work. How many times do you go out into the cold of a, a winter night on a Sunday night to go to the prayer meeting? Well, it's just a prayer meeting. There's only a few people there or whatever. It's a big deal. I don't need to be there. But you get up and you go anyway. Or how many times have you rationalized, well, you know what, I'll, I'll pray during the commercials. You know, or something like that. And you, you stay home and you pray there. Ministry is sacrifice and ministry is hard work it's a great work but it's a tiring work nonetheless and we know look we all know that god can accomplish anything he wants without us but god chooses to work through us and it seems to me that he chooses to work through those that pour themselves into the ministry and so i'd encourage you the ministry that god has for you pour yourself into it don't just give the scraps but give god your best serve him well now it continues in verse 17 and rather than David speaking to Solomon in verse 17, now he turns and he speaks to the leaders of Israel. So not the king, but the religious leaders and the clan leaders and so on. And looking at verses 17 through 19, it says, David also commanded the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now, Set your mind and your heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. So David is saying now to these leaders, look, this isn't just going to be Solomon's work, but this will be all of our work. The Lord delivered this land uh, for this people, for the people of God, and they're all going to be involved in this particular process for uh, 22:18. And if you look at 22 verse 19, it's those people that are going to be doing this work that David is instruction, instructing to come alongside of Solomon. So again, it's not the work of one man, but it's the work of many men. And he says to that group of men and women, he says, this is what you need to know. Since you're going to be busy about doing the work of God, it's very important that you, number one, you set your mind and your heart to seek the Lord. See that there? And then following that there, and then you go when you build. And I think that's very, very important, the order of things. Number one, seek the Lord, then go and serve the Lord. We seek the Lord first, and then we serve the Lord out of the overflow. And unfortunately, I think what happens in the church and in the Christian community is that we, we get so busy trying to do things that something's got to go. All right, I could quit my job. All right, that, that won't work because the family likes eating and stuff like that. Okay, so I can't get that. And I could, I could stop this thing. No, I enjoy watching that. You know, I, I can't stop that. And so as we have to cut something out of our lives, what we cut out of our lives is the seeking of the Lord. And we continue to do all the service and we're running around and we're doing all sorts of things, but we've never met with the Lord in the longest of times. And what begins to happen is our service is then becoming out of an obligation as opposed to coming out of a relationship. Our service unto the Lord has to come from the overflow. 
And so we must seek the Lord first. I think Satan would love to get every one of us so busy in the service of things that there is no time to pull back and to stop and to seek Him. And it's when we, we don't do that that we begin to drift in our relationship with Him. And before long, our service will be meaningless. And, it, and quite honestly, it'll be useless. And we'll get some things done here, but it's never going to have a lasting effect on a person's life. So we must be a people that are continually seeking the Lord. You remember in uh, the book of Revelation, which we did a little while back, a year or two ago now, uh, as we were studying the book of Revelation, we came across that church, the first church that is listed there. And you may recall during our study of the book of Revelation, we looked at those seven letters to the seven churches. And one of the things that we said is there was a real church that lived in that day that had that particular problem. But in a way, it's also a type of things as well. And it kind of speaks of the eras of church history. And I wouldn't write that down as Bible, necessarily, but you look at it and you're like, you know, that is interesting how that is. And there has been sort of cycles in church history from the days of Christ. And you, you take these churches, and the very first church is sort of that first cycle of history. And that was the church that they sort of began to drift in their relationship with God. The, the passage says, look, I see your works. I see the many things you're doing. You guys are busy, and that's great. This one thing I have against you. You've left your first love. That's the struggle. That's the danger for us as first generation Christians. You know, I decided I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm a first generation Christian. That's my danger, is that I will get so busy in my works unto Christ that I will drift away in my relationship with Christ. Solomon, or David says to these leaders and to Solomon, never forsake the seeking of the Lord and pursuing the intimacy of relationship. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, the scripture says. And then the service comes as an overflow. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, I know that you've given all of us, Lord, a, uh, 